Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode number 91 of The Nathan Seward Show. The Nathan Seward Show, inspiring you to live an extraordinary life. And welcome to the show, guys. Lovely to have you here as always. We are a little bit off schedule last week, so we're sort of going back to back. And even more so, we're going back to back with... Uh, you, you had the female Quiney, and now we have the male Quiney coming on, which was completely unplanned, but it's just how it's uh, ended up being. And let's bring on Adam because I want to chat with Adam. And Adam is a great friend of mine, and he is also an epic coach. He's an executive leadership coach. And what he says is that he likes to coach the smartest person in the room because that comes with a whole load of positive connotations and it also comes with a bunch of baggage, which Adam will probably tell us a little bit more about. But uh, always excited to chat with you. Second time on the show, only the second guest to have a second appearance. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Is my mic on? It is. Rock. <laughs> Got me. <laughs> this show will be mostly an hour of us playing rock, paper, scissors. We were I, see. We I, were worried that we weren't going to be able to make a show, and then boom, rock, rock paper, scissors. The show is as good as yeah. Who doesn't like <laughs> watching that? Other than everybody, uh, we could find out yeah. pretty quickly. I think. I was just saying to Adam before we hit the record button. I really don't want to make a show, and it's not because of you, lovely people, because I love all of you, and I'm so grateful that you guys tune in every week and watch the show and comment and like it, and share it around. Uh, but sometimes I have this little bit of. A voice, and it's, it's actually more than that. It's a little bit of a feeling in me that goes, you know, you're not feeling very good today. I'm a little bit tired. Uh, there's stuff going on, and that might cause you to make a bad show, or you might not know what to say, or you might not be funny, or you might not be interesting, and then that's going to be terrible, and then everyone's going to not like you anymore. And so just before I go on, I have this horrible feeling in my body that makes me feel like this is a horrible idea, even though I love podcasting, and I love Adam, and I love all you people that are watching. And it's funny. And I just wanted to say that. And Adam said, why don't you just say that when you go on instead of trying to hide it? So I did. That was good of me. Yeah. It's almost like you're a coach or something. Uh, almost. <laughs> I had that same experience with everything, but two places come to mind. The first is when Bay, who you talked to last week, I guess, yes. broke her foot in Portugal, which she may or may not have shared on the conversation. She didn't. Okay, so we were in Portugal. She broke her foot. It was clear we had to go to the hospital, and my mind was going insane trying to like figure out how to navigate. How was I going to do that? Like, oh, I just if I can just have a plan. And thanks in large part to the work I'd been doing with my coach leading up to that whole trip, I was like, oh, this is just me afraid I won't be able to navigate that system, and not being able to navigate that system, like the failure I was afraid of. It's not. A lot of people will be like, oh, but surely you can. But what they're missing is actually also the failure state would include looking stupid or, yeah. or appearing foolish or naive or dumb. So like I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to navigate that system, not speaking Portuguese without looking foolish or dumb, which is ultimately I'm afraid of looking foolish or dumb because then that somehow diminishes me and I won't be enough and blah, blah, blah. So that's one of the places I was really present to that. Yeah, I, that, that's cool. I, I, for me, it's humiliation. Same, same variation, but the word humiliation really resonates with me. And I felt it most when I was doing improv, where I was like, oh man, mm. now I have to get up and constantly risk looking stupid and constantly not know what to say. And ah, so strong in me. And I'm quite resentful of that feeling, actually, because it's these are things that I love to do. Like I love being on the podcast. I love having conversations. I love having my own show. And yet this feeling sometimes robs me of the joy of it. 
and has me go, okay, I'm just going to endure it today because, you know, I'm feeling not good enough. And because you're committed to something beyond not feeling that way. Like that's the other thing that's there for me is, oh, I could, my coach was acknowledging me the other day for the fact that like most people create, they arrange their lives so as not to feel the way I and probably you were feeling. And it's like, you can do that. Yeah, you, it's possible. But then the only way to really achieve that is to play inside of the game you are already mm-hmm. safe to play in. And that's like, why am I doing that? that I'm just, I want to use my life for more than that. Yeah, a lot of my life, I think I've reacted to like how I feel. And the, the, I guess the commitment that this, this show has always brought out of me is like committing to something bigger than just how I feel day to day, you know, and trying to rise above that, which means doing stuff when you don't want to do it. Something yeah, it's so annoying, right? So annoying. Like that's really hard to let go of. <laughs> and I don't always let go of it. I think yeah. that's important to share. Like there's lots of times where I'm just like, nope, don't want to. I'm unwilling and I hope my coach will pull me out and she's much too smart for that and just let, lets me be in my unwillingness and lets me be, oh, yeah, it's tough. How do you, because you have a regular Facebook show every week and you're incredibly consistent from what I can see. Did you have to have a breakthrough inconsistency sort of around what we're talking about? I think it's, uh, so let me see if I can get this straight. Get it straight. I get it straight, Adam. Do it right. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll look stupid and then everyone will hate you. <laughs> um, I think originally, I think growing up, so I'm going to go way back and hopefully this makes sense and you can interrupt if it doesn't. Growing up, I think I kind of got a bit of training from my parents. Like I, um, I'm very passionate and I like to follow my nose, K-N-O-W-S, like you and I were talking about in Peru. Like, oh my God, this is where I'm drawn. I'm going to go in this direction now. And I think, I got some training from my parents that I'm not reliable to to take stuff all the way to finishing. And so I think what I learned to do is be consistent in order to not be that thing. So I created myself like I, I'm pretty good at forcing, like forcing myself to the grindstone to make myself go to the finish line, which is not a breakthrough. Well, maybe it was when I was a kid, but then it's like, oh, great. I've created a career as a lawyer devoted to like forcing myself to be consistent in the face of not liking it and blah, 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 blah. So the breakthrough, I think, was in first learning to be inconsistent and letting myself be there and not hate myself because I could do it with all the self-loathing, but that wasn't what I was up to. And then I think the second side was then from that place where it's okay for me to be inconsistent to actually bring in consistency with love and in a way that really served me rather than to fix the thought was broken. Wow, I love that. Yeah, so you came to consistency through inconsistency or the, the acceptance of. Yes. It's really cool. The one that's similar to that that's been there for me lately is uh, I was always late as a teenager and in my 20s, pretty common probably. And so now I'm never late, <laughs> I'm obsessively on time. And I judge people who are late and I call it an integrity issue and I'm very righteous about it. And so someone I was talking to the other day, it was a former client actually, he said, oh, I'm really having a break, trying to have a breakthrough in being late or being okay mm-hmm. with being late and like being as okay and feeling as good about being on time as I do about not being on time and sort of not intentionally showing up late, but just going, okay, that's also great. And I was like, oh, that feels super uncomfortable for me to start being late or being okay with it. So I know there's something there. I remember once 
one of my first ever coaches gave me a practice. I think she was, oh yeah, because I was, I like to control life because then life can't surprise me and then I can do everything right. And then I guess on the other side of that, if I do it right enough, life starts to be fun. <laughs> Never quite seemed to get, yeah, like, maybe just like a little bit more right. If I got to a hundred, <laughs> yeah, then fun. it would be fun. <laughs> And spontaneous and all the other stuff I want. Eh, maybe I'll just have another beer. Anyhow, she gave me this practice of like, you know, allow some breakdown to happen in your life. And I remember uh, I'd set up some appointment with a person and just like didn't go to the appointment and uh, yeah, felt awful and mm. crappy and, and a little contrived too. Cause I was trying to create, I was forcing that into my life as opposed to it actually just happening. But um these things are tough. You know, there's no way to really, to releasing and surrendering and letting life happen is for me very hard. I find that really challenging. Yeah. I just, uh, I just wrote a post about uh, my first coach, Phil Drolet, who I worked together uh, with for two years, very transformative first coach you never forget. Right. And uh, I, I had dinner with him in Montreal the other day and he was really talking about surrender, you know, and really trying to un- understand. And I'm like, yeah, 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 surrender, you know, let go, blah, blah, blah. And I talk about this all the time. And I was like, oh, okay, there's like another, you know, I think sometimes what I, I am good at doing is giving the illusion of things, like giving the mm-hmm. of freedom whilst being completely controlled, giving the illusion of surrender whilst actually not really, you know, comfortably surrendering <laughs> as opposed to like truly surrendering. And mm. it was just so he gave me a bunch of podcasts and was listened to by Tara Brach, uh, who's a really cool spiritual teacher who has a really amazing podcast. You should check it out. Uh, Tara Brach? Yeah, B-R-A-C-H. And she's, mm. she's very good. She always puts lots of humor in it. And, you know, this is very cool. But yeah, totally. never doesn't want to do the podcast. She's always empowered by it. Yeah, always <laughs> fun, regardless. Um, yeah, but she was talking a lot about surrender. And as I was listening to her, I was like, oh, this is a woman that is, you know, for all intents and purposes, very far along her spiritual journey. And she's talking about what a struggle surrender is and, you know, true surrender is. And I was like, oh, okay, there's a whole other level to this letting go, to the surrendering that is available to me, I think. I find a lot of people. Have you read the Surrender Experiment? Yeah, by Michael Singer. Great book. I liked the Untethered Soul even more, but like both Michael Singer is just a fascinating guy, and a lot. That's right. Yeah, I was going to say Mickey Singer. Um, I'd like to train with him. Actually, that just thought occurred to me because he's still alive too. Yeah, he's a really cool online course. Eh, I want to be with him in person. (laughs) (laughs) You want to touch the Mickey. That's right. I'll get some of it. And then life will be fun. (laughs) (laughs) But um, my experience is often people reach for the surrender experiment as a way of bypassing something. Like they're hoping, oh, that's the the surrender experiment becomes the new answer. It's like, oh, I've been controlling everything in my life to try to make sure it goes a certain way. Now I will just surrender to everything and that will free me, give me the experience that I haven't been able to do. And it's fine. It's a you know, opposite we, for controlling people. Exactly. Yeah. I used to be an exclamation mark and now I'm a question mark. And it's like, yeah, but you're, there's something underneath both of those that you're probably still kind of stepping over. And You're still a line and a dot, okay? <laughs> we see you, question mark. We know it's just exclamation mark, bend it around a little bit. You can sort of tell it's you. Yeah. Yeah. So the concept of surrenders, and it's very big right now. Like, I don't know about you, but I hear that a lot in the conversations I'm in. and. Well, it's not right or wrong. And the only way for us to really 
walk the path is to walk off of the path so that then we can get whatever guidance allows us to get back on the path. So even when we fall off the path, we're actually still on the path. Yeah, I hear it a lot too. And just listening to Tara and having my own experience, I realized there's more to it than I think exactly what you're talking about. There's the surrender of going, oh, I used to be controlling. Now I'm now everything's great. I just allow anything to happen, except the stuff I really don't want to happen. And then there's another level to surrender, which I'm exploring. And something that really resonated with me is a Venn diagram. I put on my Instagram a few weeks ago. So, you know, it's true. <laughs> and it was discipline and mm. surrender being flow in the middle. Uh, and I sat with that a long time and I was like, huh, that's interesting because discipline without surrender is just control, A type. You know, if it's to be, it's up to me, I'll make it happen. Surrender without any kind of discipline is kind of avoidance, laziness, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. But that idea of having discipline and the discipline being, I'm going to meditate, I'm going to do my work with my coach, I'm going to journal, I'm going to be intentional and, and be true to myself. And then surrendering to what life gives you from that place. So surrendering to the outcome. So it's not just surrendering to whatever is happening. It's like, yeah, you're intentionally being disciplined in your your practices and then surrendering to what that brings. Yeah. One, that's what you just sort of made it real for me is that's often what I see is people are like, oh, I'm all about discipline. And that that's not that's got a limited half-life. And then they're like, great, I'm not going to do any discipline. I'm just going to surrender. Which also, there's not a lot of like, on the one hand, you're forcing life to go a certain way, we could say. And then on the other hand, you're just completely taking your hand off the steering wheel. There's not a lot of co-creation in either of those. And at least for me and the work I've been in lately, I think of how it went with our trip to Peru, which is, I was very committed to the Reslaird, which I think was about six people. And I was in action to create that to the extent that I was, because there was some life that made that more challenging for me. But I was also surrendering to like, however this goes is however this is going to go. So I can stay in committed action while still being okay with it turning out the way it turns out, which is a big shift for me because normally it'd be, I'm in committed action and I'm going to break spirit in half if I have to make it go the way I know it's supposed to go. And, and that's just like, it's a life contained inside my own head, which is... Yeah, and to go back to your, yeah. your, your previous point, it's like that the consequence is no joy. So it's like, oh yeah, you may force that, but what was the, the price you pay? And was that worth it? Why are we doing any of this in the first place? So what was your experience of that new way of being? That's just easier. Like, truly easier. Way more joy... So it, it used to be like, when things are working out, I can be joyful, which then leads down two paths to life. One is you sort of push out more and more of life. So there's less that has to work out so that you get to experience more joy. Or the other one is you, you take on more in your life because you're committed to creating an impact in the world. But then I get to experience less joy because there's more stuff that has to work out and thus less time for joy. And from that breakthrough, my experience is I get to have, it's not quite as pat as it's going to sound, but I get to have it all a little bit. Like I get to be creating a lot of impact in the world and experiencing a lot of joy, regardless of how that impact is unfolding as it does. This is good stuff. <laughs> now I'm, I'm coming alive just by listening to this, uh, which is fun. Yeah, me too. I mean, this is, this is really big for me at the moment because... Oh man, you know, I think I'm going through like a big, I've been through a lot of breakdown the last couple of weeks. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time with you, so I'm not sure if there's a 
correlation with that, <laughs> <laughs> your face or your presence. Um, but yeah, I think so much of my life has been created from not good enough or not worthy or I am what I have or I am what I achieve or I am how much money is in my bank account. And, you know, like as I grow my capacity and as I do more around that, it's like, oh, this is really hard and really exhausting and I have a lot of things that don't go well or don't work. I have a ton of things that go really well and I have a ton of things that don't go that well because I'm doing a ton of things. Yeah. And, you know, when those things are, when who I am is what goes well and when who I am is how much money I earn. And if that doesn't work, uh, you know, you mentioned Pro, we wanted to have six people. We got one. There was a financial impact to that uh, for me and you. It's heavy. It's really, really heavy. And that's kind of caused the breakdown. And so I'm getting to see all of these things so clearly, so clearly. Uh, uh, one of the things that really hit me in the face recently. It's funny because you can hear this stuff 13 ways, but it's like the 14th way that is the one that gets in. Um, <laughs> so I think that's the surrender thing for me in particular. Yeah. I was in a counseling appointment with my wife, Bay and I, and what really struck me, first of all, the context for this was I've been reading Werner Earhart. And one of the things that's really been resonating for me is this idea that anytime you be a certain way in order to not be another way, it just reinforces the thing you're trying not to be. So if I be really happy in order to not be sad about my dog dying or or in order to not be a downer, then that reinforce, like all of that energy just recreates downer. I am downer. And one of the things that I was really hit with all of a sudden was I am super reliable to do a ton of work and to perform in whatever position, place, situation you put me in in our counseling conversation was in our sex life was the context or the content of what we were talking about. And I was just like, Oh my God, the fervor with which I take on our practices, the not enoughness that's in my body whenever Bay and I are doing something together. And I'm like, ah, this isn't enough. We need to be pushing harder. All of that is in response to an underlying fear that I'm inadequate. I'm not doing enough and we aren't doing enough. And so this should be, and then of course that gets into the space and it just, perpetuates my inadequacy. And, and then, of course, the following two things happened from there. The first was like, well, fuck, then what? And then the second thing that happened was like, ha, now I've got the answer. Got it. I just don't have to try to perform. And then it'll all be solved, which is just the new level of performance. My ego like got that one pretty quick. <laughs> and how are you, are you looking for a breakthrough in that? Or are you just in the awareness part of that journey? Well, can I tell you what happened next? Sure. How graphic is it? Uh, no, it's not graphic. <laughs> what happened next was I got into a conversation with my coach. So I, I was like, oh my God, awesome insight. And I brought it to my coach. And then she was like, hmm, hmm. And I'm like, uh-oh, that's bad. Mm. That's like M-M instead of M-M-M. <laughs> it's only two M's. That's a dangerous M. Hmm. <laughs> and, and I said, hmm, what? She said, well, it's great. So she acknowledged me for that insight and then was like, but it also seems like now you've got the solution and this is going to become the next answer for you. And so you're like, great. All I have to do is this. And you might just notice that's going from the exclamation mark to the question mark a little bit. Coming and, from the same place in a way. Yeah. And mm -hmm. to her credit, because she's an amazing coach, she also acknowledged like, you know, it, it, it part of your job, Adam, is to go to that direction. Like you almost can't not do that because that's just the way our brain operates. But 
<laughs> I went into that conversation like, yes, and then left the conversation like, what even is gravity? Nothing makes sense anymore. <laughs> Thanks for nothing, um, Rachel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I was talking to uh, a client the other day that I just completed with. I was asking him to do a testimonial and he said, well, how do I write in the testimonial that I often came off our calls more confused than when I went into them? <laughs> yeah, it's a tough sell, but please write that because I'm proud of that. Yeah, uh, let me say hi to some people. Alison, so nice to have you here. Alison says my um, my shirt is looking psychedelic. You know, this is interesting, right? This is uh, the most fascinating topic because <laughs> the most yeah. fascinating topic. Finally, yeah. we're there. Uh, breakthroughs, question marks, and next to my, you know, I was kind of lost in that conversation. But this is something I can get my teeth <laughs> into. Uh, I should. I'm not really allowed to wear red. Like when you're a white, like you can see, Adam has a bit of a reddy face because he's a white guy, and we we get a bit pinky in the sun, you know. And so everyone's Ready. like, if you're that white guy with the pinky face, don't wear red. And you know what I said? You know what I said, Allison? I said, fuck him. So here I am, and now I get this beautiful. What I'm taking is a compliment that my my body appears psychedelic. Mm, well, she said your shirt. <laughs> it's it's a shirt that's framing up my body that is looking a little bit wintry. <laughs> is it stripy? Is it striped? Uh, yeah, it is stripy. Or heathered? No. What's the what does that mean? Oh. Well, heathered is like um, when you like imagine a kind of like a little bit like the snow you'd see on a, a TV screen, but less white. So if you had like a black shirt and then there's little oh. flecks of white, that's called heathered. It's sort of not linear. No, that's it's right. Definitely, it's definitely um, it's definitely linear. Mm. And uh, I want to say hi to um, I want to say hi to Jackie, who's uh, my friend from Auckland. I want to say hi to Edward, who's my friend from Auckland, uh, which is lovely. Thanks for watching, guys. Thanks for contributing. I love when you guys comment. I love when you interact because uh, it makes us know, you know, let us know that you're watching and that you're getting something out of this. Adam. Nathan. Um, I think of you as quite a heady individual because, and you talk about the people you work with as being uh, the smartest people in the room. And I think of you that way. And I often, and that is often where I meet you in conversations. Just, uh, you and I have no problem being very intellectual and, uh, really getting to the bottom of things. I think Werner Earhart appeals to that as well. And what surprised me in the last few months is you've gone uh, on quite a big spiritual journey. And I think I've been on a spiritual journey for a, quite a while and probably looking at coaching more from uh, an analytical way or a more you know, intellectual way recently. And it feels like you maybe are going the other way. And that is intriguing to me. So what's sort of triggered this desire to go on more of a spiritual journey? Um, well, so first thing, I also, uh, Alison asked a great question that we should, uh, that I'd love to speak to as well, but uh, I'll speak to what you said first, which okay. is, I think I'm actually, I am, I have a lot of brilliance. That's a part of what I bring into a room. You know, it's just part of who I am. Um, but I think actually I'm quite a hardy individual who learned growing up innocently and with love. So this is not like my parents did wrong. They just trained me in what they'd been trained in and what they thought would best serve me going into the world. I, I was trained that being hardy was not as valuable as being heady. And so I think a lot of times what happens is when I get scared, I run up into my head because then I know that I can provide value and where there's value, then I don't have to be worried about my own worth and so on and so forth. But I think actually like a lot of you could look at the first 30 years of my life where like, how do I live more in my head and better that way? And then ever since the moment when I first got 
like a really powerful reflection from someone who's really masterful in the art of coaching. I think my life has become about like, how do I not never do that, but like set that aside for now and come down into my heart more and more and let myself feel more of what I'm feeling. And I think uh, we could say like the first part of my life coming from head was a lot about self. It's a lot about me. And then eight years ago or however long it was, was a lot about like others. So I was living life in large part just from self and not like there was other people in the world, but they were just in my fucking way. And all I really needed to know was how better to manipulate them so they do what I needed them to do because I already knew what was best for them anyhow, blah, blah, blah. Then was like, oh, that's not that's not fun. That's got a limited life. And uh, so then it started to become about my heart and living more with others. And then I think probably about a year and a half ago, if you think of it like a triangle, there's self, self, others, and then spirit is the third part. And that's like those three things. I think we need a powerful relationship to all three of those things to really, well, I don't know if we need anything, but like, I just feel that having a relationship with all three of those things is really powerful. And I've been feeling the, this is going to sound heady, the paucity of living without any relationship to spirit. It sounds quite, uh, it sounds a little bit linear the way you're describing it, but I'm sure it was like all over the place to get to this point. It wasn't like, yeah, okay, totally. I've mastered people, I've got self down, I've got people now, what's next? Oh, better get, get to spirit. Yeah, and maybe maybe that's true now that I think about it. Like, I, I don't think in the moment it occurred that way, but like, I don't know, there's something that happens that happened for me where I reached a level of money became fairly abundant. And from that place, you you bankrupt the myth that money will give you happiness pretty quickly. And we know that's happened Two, I really started to take on my addictions. And that is like ultimately a spiritual journey. Most of those of us that are addicts, we, we use whatever our addiction is to fill the void. This is at least recovery works belief is we use it to fill the void of God, a lack of God in our lives. So that really started to inform my journey. And those two things like, oh, more money doesn't actually move the needle. And, oh, I really am not satisfied to keep pursuing addictions to, I don't know, fill that void has embarked me on this journey. I don't know if I'm answering your question at all. We could talk more about your shirt if you like. <laughs> I'm definitely more comfortable talking about the shirt. <laughs> me um, too. Yeah. <laughs> so we better not go back to that. Um, that's interesting. I, I so resonate with that. And mm. yeah, I think that the first part of your life is not for everyone, but my experience is very ego driven very ambition-driven, and I guess by definition, very self-driven. And yeah, I think that's where I find myself in a similar place now, probably more the, the in the getting out of the ambitious. If it's not about me and if it's not about ambition and if that, you know, you get to a point where it's like, yeah, I could achieve whatever I put my mind to, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't know, that hasn't made me happy so far or that hasn't, you know, it just kind of has me being alone on the top of a mountain going, look how good I am. Uh, but looking around and going, oh, there's no one here. This is not that satisfying. And so, yeah, yeah working on relationship with people, then, you know, as a result. But I also notice the propensity to increase addictions or go towards addictive behavior or try to fill that gap out of like a resignation or, a, you know, not knowing, not knowing what's missing and not knowing yeah. how to move through that. And the fact that it feels good. Ugh. Like short term, whatever your addiction is, whatever my addiction is, feels good. Scratches the itch. Feels yeah. good to scratch that mosquito bite. Sure does. Yeah. So where are you at on that journey? Which one? Spiritual addictions? Both. Both. Yeah. Um, it's really hard for me to 
when I created a breakthrough around money, I could to our bank account and be like, there's real abundance there. That yeah. happened through the work. Whereas there's not a lot that I can point to with uh, like a breakthrough in spirit. Hmm. What I can say is there's a lot of stuff that, that I am doing in my life in partnership with people and not in part, like, and solo that is really, truly terrifying. Like going to Machu Picchu, running, Bay and I run an intensive once a year. I'm, I'm planning to increase that to twice a year because I really see something there. Oh. Peer-led, just all the stuff that I'm up to is really um, the potential. It's very scary. That's the best way I can put it. It's just like a lot of possibility. And there's a lot of like, are you crazy spending money going off to Peru? And then I have this conversation with my dad where he just confirms those same fears <laughs> for me, <laughs> which is his, his job as my dad. I get it. But, and all of that stuff to some extent is possible because of the relationship I'm creating the spirit. Mm. And I don't know a better way to put that other than to say like, I'm less dictated and controlled by my fear. And I'm also much more at ease with my fear in doing those things. The other thing that I notice happening is um, you and I had this amazing guide that we really loved named Alfredo. And uh, he took us all through Peru and showed us all these places. And I noticed these voices showing up more and more in my head that I'm starting to pay more attention to. And the one that's there right, right now, it's a crazy idea, but it's like, hey, <laughs> it's come to me, I think three times. And it goes, hey, you should fly Alfredo and his cousin Eddie out to Canada to spend a couple of days with you in Bay. There's no payoff. Well, I mean, who knows, right? But there's no clear financial or like, I'll do this and I'll invite people and it'll go a certain way. I just noticed that voice is there and that I'm like, okay, that call is there. And I don't know what yet to do with it, but I'm listening to it and I'm hearing it now. And that's something that is not, that's not been present in my life for as long as I have known myself. Mm. And thank you for talking about all this. I know it's, mm -hmm. uh, it feels vulnerable. I'm not sure sometimes it, you know, it can be on a lot, but it feels quite uh, personal and vulnerable. So thank you for going there. Yeah. Yeah, it I is. Love, I love you a lot in this moment. I feel very drawn to this uh, conversation. Yeah, it's interesting. Again, I resonate with all of this. And I had a similar thing this week, right? I, I was in my meditation and I was like, oh, you should do a, a podcast called Bedtime Stories. And it will be the same as like, you know, we, we always have bedtime stories when we're a kid, but we never get them when we're an adult. And the bedtime stories would be kind of humorous, maybe dirty. kind of. It would sort of be like an adult bedtime stories. And I was like, in my, do you ever laugh in your meditation? Sometimes yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll get something and I'll just giggle to myself. And I was it's like, oh. Yeah, and then the next thought was like, well, no, that's ridiculous. I mean, who's going to listen to that? What if you don't have enough stories? You know, it's hard work. It's hard enough doing one podcast. You know, all the reasons why that is not going to work started coming. And I was like, wow, I watched this whole process, something that literally made me lol. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how quickly I interview, <laughs> which ironically <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, lolling at my <laughs> lol comment. Uh, how quickly I dismissed it. How quickly I, you know, that might that might be the greatest creative thing that I have ever come up with, and I was able to dismiss it. You know, ten seconds after it came up. But it's cool because you heard that voice, and at least for me, let's say eight years ago, the way it went was if we lay it out headily. 
it would be there's that idea, then there's all the reasons why not, then there's the compromise we make with ourself, spirit, life, our possibility, whatever. Then there's, okay, well, then I guess I'll do more of this or I guess this. And eight years ago, I would have only heard that last piece. Like I wouldn't be present to any of that other stuff. I'd just be like, I guess, like it wouldn't even sound like a guess. It would just be, well, got to go to work. That would be the conversation. And now there's all of this other stuff that frankly, like it, it's a little painful to hear because that there's a heartbreak to the fact that all of that stuff is there and we're present with it. We're like, ah, it's not yet there. And fuck yeah, that's amazing. You know, that that voice that I'm, I'm excited for you and for me and anyone else that's present to this, that I can hear that sound now and maybe even start to listen to it a little more and, and follow it. Yeah, and what if part of surrender was trusting that and going for it? Exactly. So what's there for me now is like a money story as well. Someone said to me last week during my breakdown, part of your problem, Nathan, is you have a really terrible money story. I was like, fuck you, first of all. and yeah, second, Thanks for telling no, me what I, my problem is. Yeah, thanks very much. <laughs> second of all, no, I don't. And third of all, you've got a money story. <laughs> but like when you're a kid, you just, your response was just saying the same thing. Man. Man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then I sat with it like so often happens and I was like, oh. And how it looks for me is I should create a podcast called Bedtime Stories for Adults. And, you know, uh, oh, how would I make my, that's a lot of time to dedicate to something. What's the what's the financial plan behind it? Well, there isn't really one that I can see. So that's not viable. And so this money story, for want of a better phrase, uh, it just it, it muddies everything. It stops everything. Mm-hmm. And I realize like it's, it's such a uh, yeah, unless there's a viable financial plan, like how do I even know what that might be? Like how do I even know without trying? Yet that's almost my second thought with anything that comes to me, any ideas, like what's the financial model? Can you resonate yeah. with that? Yeah. I'm I'm curious what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Believe me, I would have already done so if I could. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't have gotten away without being hit with that beam. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, one, the first thing I'm curious about is like what even what your money story is, your story about money. I remember mine was the one I was raised with was you can't predict. My dad brought it to me just the other day. You can't predict what's going to happen 20 years from now, five years from now. Choose your time frame. It doesn't matter. Whatever you choose, it's going to still fall into the same conversation. Therefore, most importantly, save most of your money and then devote 10% to a vacation or like 10%, you know, 90% is building safety nets. And then 10% is flying on the trapeze, which is, that's a good thing because you'll never die from falling off the trapeze. You'll never really get very good at it either. And it's also just, that's how most of us live our life. That's how I was living my life is 90% safety, 10% doing what I really want to do. So that was my money story was even if you make a bunch of money, don't spend any of it. And so then I have to work, if we do the math, what is that? Like 90% harder than really necessary to create the life I want. So anyhow, I share that one to connect and just to put mine on loudspeaker. And I'm curious, like, what what was the one you got? I, 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 find, it, hmm. I find it hard to go back there, like to figure that out. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think I kind of had a, you know, my parents were not, poor, not wealthy. We were like the ultimate middle class. They were both working professionals. Yeah. Uh, and I had uh, one of my family members was uh, supremely wealthy and he was very kind to us and treated us to a lot of great vacations and stuff like that. 
And I think the conversation that I heard within the family was how amazing that person is and look what Mm. they're able to do and look what they've done. And I kind of looked at it and I was like, what do they do differently? Well, they have a business. They travel a lot. You know, so travel must be part of being successful, like where you can just live all over the world. And so I think my version of success comes from that is like, Mm. oh, you're only successful when you have a business that earns a ton of money, travel the world, have houses all over the world and can do things for people. Plus money makes you amazing or incredible or good or whatever your people saw in that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very specifically, it's like the money that's generated from a business. You know, like making a lot uh-huh. of money because I made a lot of money when I was flying, but it wasn't wasn't business money, you know, whatever that means. So I think that's a lot of it is my my joy, my happiness, my sense of self worth is really tied to how well I do in business. And I don't do great in business. I have some up months and some down months, but I, I'm not a great entrepreneur. I'm, I know I'm getting better and better, but right in this moment, it's not. I wouldn't say like I'm a natural born entrepreneur that just, you know, shits out hundred dollar bills because they're they're so natural. So I think that causes me to go, oh God, I'm not I'm not that great as an entrepreneur. I can't just I can't just I haven't just been able to whip up an incredible business from nowhere. So therefore, who am I? Like am I I can't be that good a person. I'm fascinated even in this conversation, like what what came into my head was what even is a natural entrepreneur? Like we have this idea when we hear that for me, what showed up was like, Oh, like someone, I guess is really good at making money from building a business, but then <sighs> try not to make this too heady. Now you've gotten in my head, you jerkwad, but it's like, uh, those, <laughs> those people I find are drained and exhausted and tired and unhappy and miserable. Like there's always something. There's always a thing that's not working just to be human. And, and then I started to think, well, I guess really being an entrepreneur is just being the expression of yourself in business. That's really what it is. Like, how do I make money being Adam in the world? And how do I want to choose to make that money? And anyhow, I think I'm digressing us, but like, I'm no, fascinated you're, you're by where on. we are. You're yeah. being on because I, you know, like I know it's, it's so present for me at the moment. Like I've come to the apex of, or the, the, the intersection of this whole way of being. Because now I've been full-time in business for over two years. And so it's like, okay, here it is. You're doing it. You're traveling the world and you're in business and you're kind of making some money. And it's like, oh, kind of just feels stressful and hard. <laughs> like, not that. Uh, where comes the point where I'm amazing and like I'm perfect and I just have people love me all the time. And, you know, that hasn't happened <laughs> so much. So the point that I'm at now is like, like I said, that the thing that calls to me is like, oh, how can I, um, how can I make a really fun podcast where I just make funny stories and laugh all the time? And the other part of me that's like, but will that take you closer to being a successful entrepreneur? Mm. And so I'm like, right there, I'm like, wow, I can feel this, whatever the higher self, the creative part of me, the calling, the that part of me, I could sense it, and you know, my I know my essence in that regard, and then I have this such strong pull towards being a successful entrepreneur. Now, can you fix me? Uh, I was just thinking how, so for me, there's, this is where um, the surrender part doesn't be bypass is I can surrender to how Peru or any of this other stuff goes. Cause there's also a part like I'm reliable to generate income. My business does well enough, like uh, doing what we do, Bay and I, and then 
what was interesting was when I was sitting with my dad and he was asking how it went, he had advice for me, which again is totally fine. That's his job as dad is to give his son who he loves advice. And a lot of the advice was, uh, yeah, well, you should see me in the moment. <laughs> I, I'm trying to, trying to model something you sound here. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm saying that it that way as much to remind myself totally. <laughs> as anything else. Um, but even in his advice, I could hear that same story about money because he was saying, well, you know, maybe you need to bring people here first to where you live. Cause then that way you're not spending as much out and uh, uh, none of this comes with an answer, right? That's part of what I'm present to in this moment. And there's never enough money inside that. That's what the thing that I got is like talking to my dad. I was like, ah, oh, there's never enough money that, that you would, you dad and would ever be comfortable with how it went with Peru. Not possible. Yeah. You know, you know, I love Kyle Cease, and he just uh, he just did a really great interview with uh, the uh, greatness guy. I can't remember his name, um, but he was saying like, if you uh, if you still want money, or you still you know really crave money, or you need money, which is you know kind of what I'm saying, like that that part of being that successful entrepreneur is like, I want to be reliable to generate a lot of money. He said, you're not ready for it. Mm. You still desperately want it. You're not ready for it. He said, like, the moment you don't want it or don't need it or don't desperately desire it, which goes for wanting a boyfriend or a girlfriend, um, which goes for anything that you feel like that strong desire to have it go a certain way or to have it, you're not ready for it. And so I've been sitting with that a lot and going, huh, you know, part of my surrender is like, okay, you know, like surrendering to it not having to be that way. What if it never goes that way? Yeah. Yeah. Two thoughts come to mind. The first is making money in order to not feel scarce or in order to whatever never works. So like I see that all the time with people that are in um, usually like finance, financial planners, investors, whatever, uh, often real estate people where they've like chosen the career that makes a ton of money. And they're still they're trying to earn enough money out of an underlying story of scarcity of money and it wow. never works. Yeah. It just yes. increases the scale at which they're, they're both the highs and the lows of that underlying story operates at. That's interesting that you see that in the financial industry in particular. Big I totally get that. And, yeah. just the, and the way of being and the conversation, you're, you're so right. Yeah. Music to my ears, by the way, when you say that. You can keep telling me I'm right as long as you like. <laughs> and you're also too heady. <laughs> <laughs> ah! And the second thing that comes to mind is I remember talking to a man named Christopher McAuliffe, who is a dear friend and the CEO of Accomplishment Coaching. And we were midway through a weekend of training coaches and I was complaining to him or kind of, let's call it complaining because I think that's what it was. I was like, man, there's never enough money. You know, I've raised my rates over, over the last couple of years. I'm doing better. There's like, it comes in and never seems like there's enough money, Christopher. And he, he listened and got me and then said, you know, Adam, um, may I, may I offer something? I said, of course, please thinking like, he's going to be like, you just need to take this, this five day course. But that's not what he said. Uh, he said, I hear you saying that like more and more and more money is coming in and that it's never enough. And that just leads, it gives me the hunch that if more money is not solving this, it's actually probably not a money issue. It's probably a spirit 
issue. It's probably a spiritual issue. And it might be worth you checking and seeing like, how, how well do you feel you can, do you feel held by spirit, by universe, by God, by whatever you want to call it, or is it on your own, which is very much my story from my family, because otherwise it's not going to be enough and it's going to all fall on your shoulders and it's going to break your back and you're going to be crushed. And then that will be the end of it. And he said that to me probably about six to seven years ago. And I really started, I mean, I started taking it on a little bit then, but not until this year has it really started to, to shift. Mm, yeah, it's the same, what I was sort of saying a while back that, you know, when I have that belief that I am money, mm. it's, it's not always just a negative. Well, the one side is if I, if I don't have money, I'm a failure. But it's also the positive. It's believing that I can only which is one of my beliefs I've been looking at is I can only have an impact if I have a lot of money. Like true impact doesn't occur until you have resources to, you know, to use. Holy cow. Yes. Yeah. And so that's as insipid as feeling like you're not enough when you don't have money. I think, you know, totally that what you just said, I've heard that so many times when people come, you've probably had this too. People come into a conversation and they're like, Here's what I want. I want to make do this so as to do this so as to make a bunch of money. And then it's like, great, awesome. Nothing wrong with making a bunch of money. I like money too. Why? And they're like, well, then I could really have the impact I want to have. And it's like, great. So the question for us to be looking at is it always seems like money and it almost never is money. Like, what's in the way of you creating the kind of impact you want to have right now? Mm-hmm. I know it's going to say it's going to seem like money, but are you all right setting that aside so we can really look at that question outside of money? Yeah, and you you know like the you know, I've been looking at Gandhi a lot recently. You know, no real money involved in his movement, and he led the British out of India. You know, yeah, basically. and not with billions of dollars to pay them to leave. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's it's a belief. You know, if I look at a couple of years ago, it was that uh, money allows me to have experiences. It was at a time in my life where traveling and doing crazy adventures. Okay. I'm still in that time of my life, but that was <laughs> it, money provided that. So it was like, if I didn't have money, I couldn't have the experiences that I really desired to have. And so part of like where I'm looking is how can I have the impact? How can I have the experiences with or without money, mm. regardless of money, like with it, I'll have great experiences, have a huge impact. Without it, if I never earn another dollar, I'll still find a way to be incredibly impactful and have a great experience on this planet. It's the most powerful way, like place for people to come into coaching from too. Like when coaches can really just, there's a point I remember being terrified about money. That seems to be the topic of this conversation. Yeah, it's funny that it is. But terrified was how I felt like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then what am I going to do? If I look back, like we were paying our bills, we did fine, but the fear was there. It was terrifying. And I had this kind of realization like, wow, if the worst thing happened and I had to go back to school or I had to go to get a job and work as a lawyer or whatever, which is great worst case scenario. I get it. But yeah, same for me. Go fly airplanes. It's a real nightmare. Yeah. Right. Like, ah, uh. <laughs> and our fears are fear. And, you know, <laughs> it doesn't discern. It doesn't give a damn about us being better off than someone else. It's like, no, fuck you. I'm your fear. I'm just for you. And I'm going to terrify you. And what I realized was, oh, even if that happened, I would still coach. I would still do what I do because it matters to me and because I care that much and because that's what I want to do. And I'm going to find a way to make that difference in the world regardless. And there was something about coming to that realization that really let me take a breath 
it didn't solve any of my stuff with money, but it was like, oh, well, this isn't going to change. I'm still going to do this. I'm still going to make this difference the way I know to make this difference in the world. Yeah, I, I have that. This is such a fine line for me because I have that often. You know that question, uh, if you had a billion dollars, what would you do? You know, what would you do with your time? It's like, well, first I would go and buy an expensive airplane and really exhaust that, <laughs> the joy out of that. But once I'm done with that, uh, it would still be something around helping people, helping people. It would still be something around that. It's, you know, I'm not a million miles away. The, the, the fear or the scarcity or the terrifying or all the money stories has me create it from a weird place a lot yeah. of the time, you know, and attract the wrong people, work with the wrong people, potentially. Um, the, the desire is there that, that if I get rid of the money story, that a, a close cousin of that is still there. Can I segue slightly? I want to ask a little bit about your coaching business because, you, you know, you've, you've done well. You're a successful coach by, by all metrics. What's the journey been like? I, I know it's it's always a little bit dangerous to give this like linear, oh, here's what happened and here's how we got here. But I'm really intrigued about uh, your path into coaching and how getting to this point where you are successful has kind of looked. I'll start and interrupt me. Uh, I don't have to end right at the top of the hour, so no rush over cool. here. Great. But um, interrupt me where you want me to, you want to direct me. So uh, initially I hired a coach and took the training he was taking and none of it really made a difference for me. What I mean by that is it gave me a bunch of tools and a bunch of information. And I had someone that I went and I had a conversation with that was ostensibly a coaching conversation, but none of it actually changed anything really for me in my life. I just kept doing my life the same way I knew to do it better. And um, during that time, I had some clients that I'd, I was in law school and I'd kind of canvassed everyone. I was very committed to not being a lawyer. So I'd asked every, are you interested in a conversation? And some of them even approached me and some of them were even willing to pay me a little bit of money, like maybe $100 a month, which felt unbelievable. I can't believe anyone's paying me any money to have a conversation with me. And from there, I knew I wanted more training. And I, by the grace of God or whatever it was, I found my way into a program that really made a difference and was really impactful, completely transformed my life. Didn't take away all of my arrogance, but at least helped me see it. <laughs> so I could then at least be responsible for how arrogant I can be. And when you start to become aware and responsible for your arrogance, some humility can start to show up as well. So I trained with them for a year and, and led their work for about five years. And during that period of time, I slowly started to create clients. And the rate they invited me to start, they told all of us, like, as of today, start charging $500 a month for a minimum of three months, full stop. Did that feel challenging? Yeah, it was terrifying. And all of us were scared by it. Everyone, almost everyone who people are of one of two places when they come into coaching, I find. And entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs are probably this way too. One is we're all wacky about money, full stop. Second, from that wackiness, we do one of two things. We drastically undercharge for a rate, so no one ever says no, or we're totally unwilling to be a novice, so we totally overcharge for our services. And so that's like you'll see people start coaching and then immediately be demanding $20,000. And they're just, they can't hold that much energy in their body. They go crazy. And, and so they don't create clients and then they drop out of coaching. $500 a month is a great place for new coaches to start. And if you can start doing that well, then 
great, you've started that and then you can move on to the next thing. So that took me a while, probably four months of having terrifying conversations, trying to help people say yes to me, um, using the language of coaching to be a shithead <laughs> when they said no to me. I think I've probably made a lot of messes that I probably still haven't cleaned up. And then the first time someone said yes to me, I remember it very well because we had this conversation and uh, someone from law school had put me in touch with them. He's delightful. We had a conversation and I said, okay, great. This is what it looks like. He said, awesome. I'm going to talk to my wife about it. I said, great. Just call me when you want to call me. He told me Monday. And then I had this weekend that I didn't sleep at all, of course, because I'm like, oh my God, what's going to happen? He called and I did not answer the phone because I was way too scared wow. to hear him say no. And on the answering machine, he said, hey, Adam, I'm ready. Let's do it. I talked to my wife. She's on board. I'm really excited. And I was like, holy cow, unbelievable. Yeah. So that was kind of my year of, as I was being trained, really trained to become Adam a little more and, and learn how to really be a coach rather than to just do coaching at people. I was charging $500 a month. Um, so what I hear so far is a couple of, couple of turning points. One, deciding to be a coach and knowing yeah. that's what you wanted to do. Didn't want to be a lawyer and then honoring that feeling and diving in, which that's, that's a big move to start with. Two mm. is finding a really great training program and you're a huge advocate for accomplishment coaching. And you know, I think you're also a good advert for it. And then three, you know, once you, you have done a great training, being willing to actually come in at the price that is not ridiculously high, not $10 a month, but charge what you're worth at that stage and then start being willing to get no's and hopefully a yes at that rate. Yeah. One other thing that I'll say, like if we're talking about turning points, the big turning point, not just was what happened in that program, but like the fact that it, at a time when I had six figures of debt because of my law degree and Bayes MBA, it cost 20,000 US, which is about a billion dollars Canadian. <laughs> and yeah, and we had no money in the bank for that. And at the same time, I felt on some level, this is really what's there to take on and took the terrifying plunge of um, borrowing from the equity in our home. And no one thought this was a good idea. And yet there was something that was just like, no, this, I can feel that this is what's there for me to take on. Uh, so that was the other part was making the investment in the face of circumstances that would tell me to do something else. I'll share like a couple other turning points. So as time went on, I was leading their work in Seattle and then San Diego. So I was training, uh, flying to San Diego once a month. I had now left law behind and had a boat $4,000 in the bank, whatever our income tax return for the last year was, which was roughly four months of runway to sort of become fully profitable. And my commitment was either I'm going to drive this airplane right into the mountain face, or I'm going to get it off the runway and get it into the air. And that's, I have to, otherwise I'm going to forever keep both feet on, I'm mixing metaphors here, but like on two different canoes and it's going to, you know, cause groin problems. Which I did transport not want. metaphors, which is fun. Yeah, that, yeah. It's thank you. I needed the grouping. Transport metaphors. I'm here to help. <laughs> so I slowly raised my rates. I devoted myself, and I wrote a book during this time called "The Fifty Two Week Guide to Being an Entrepreneur." And it's neat because there's a one of the moments, one of the days, sort of weeks that I was writing about was where grinding. Grinding, 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 grinding in tons of conversation. And I kind of took my head up, probably out of anger or frustration, and took a look around. And I was like, whoa, we're in the air. Like, this is viable. They're making enough money to eat food, pay our rent or our mortgage, and 
full stop, which was amazing. Yeah, exciting moment. Yeah, yeah, it was incredible. So you never had a moment that you were part-time doing this. You kind of were like, right, money in the bank, done my training, and just going to throw everything at it and, and hope it works. Uh, while I, well, I would say like the last half of law school, law school's three years, the last year and a half of law school, I was kind of part-time. The last six months of law school, I was full-on part. I would go to law school and then come home and make phone calls or email people or invite people to coaching conversations or try to create a client. And then there's a, in Canada, you work for a year as a lawyer and then write the bar exam and then you're a member of the bar. So that year I was basically, I, it was a grind for sure. You know, I was working, I'd get up at about 6am, walk to my office, work through to about 4.30, rush home, put food in my face and then coach people for three hours. Um, yeah. So that was a tough year. Totally. I think that's a familiar story for all the new coaches. <laughs> so what happened was I was... I'd slowly raising my rates, first $500 a month, then $600, then $700, $800. And eventually I reached this point where I got to $900 and I decided, oh, it's time to go exponential. This is the part where I had to learn to actually have people aware of their own possibility rather than how smart I was. Hmm. I, I slowly raised my rates from $500 to $900 a month. And what would happen is I'd get on a phone call with someone, I would coach them really brilliantly, and they would because I'm reliable to do that. And they would be like, wow, Adam's super smart. Uh, I don't really know what I'm going to get out of this. I'm not really sure what's going to happen, but I'm going to, I'm willing to, to risk that money on him being super smart. It's only three months, so we could end blah, blah, blah. And what happened was I raised my, I doubled my rates effectively, and I doubled how long people had to commit to working with me. So it was really about a $9,000 commitment. No one said yes. Everyone started saying no. And I was super scared and frustrated and angry at them. It was all their fault. And it took a lot of uncomfortable work and conversations with my coach, getting, again, past my righteousness and my arrogance. And eventually what, what I... The, the, yeah, carry on. But do you remember what the breakthroughs were? Like the, the turnaround of that moment? Because I think this is... It feels like at every level when you raise mm. your rates... And I imagine it's the same in, in a lot of different businesses, especially service-based businesses, that yeah. it's like you raise your rates and then all the clients that were the old rates sort of disappear and that client base disappears. And then you're kind of out to sea, floating in space, going, fuck, did I make the biggest mistake of my life? So I just get rid of the cash cow thinking, you know, arrogantly that I could actually ask for more money. And then yes. something shifts. Yeah, so at this point, the the breakthrough was really... I'm trying to think of the right way to describe. I can't, I don't know the exact word for like the shift in my being that happened. It might've been trust or partnership was probably the breakthrough, but the way it looked was letting, I had this belief that I had to show up and dance for people kind of like the way I was dancing was brilliant coaching, but I was like, Oh, I got to do a bunch of value onto them. You know what I mean? Like get ready to get hit with a coach stick. And instead of, <laughs> instead of really trusting that if they really got present to what was possible in their own lives, that's all they really needed. That's what people need. And for me to believe in that possibility with them. And so really removing myself a lot, supporting them to get to that vision, but like removing all of, look how smart Adam is as a coach, which was terrifying because I had learned to rely on my intellect as the way of being of value. And so I remember this moment. I think I shared this with you when we were in Peru together. 
where I was on the phone, I just practiced for months, months of getting no's. And my coach and I were working on me just asking questions about what people really want in their life. And then the next, and then the next, and, and what's in the way. Okay. If we moved that out of the way, then what would you have? And what would you create from there? And how would that, all of those questions to have people just present to what might happen. And I had this conversation with a woman, I love her. Uh, I miss her actually. And she and I were talking and at the end, I was like, okay, I'm just going to read you back what, what we've found, what's there. And I read it all back. And then I just sat quietly, convinced this, like everything else, wasn't going to make a difference. And she said, wow, could I hire you to work with me on that? And I was like, there's got to be a harder way. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is not this, how it goes. Yeah, this has to be harder than this. And she was the first person to hire me for a year at those new rates, not even six months, a year, because of what she saw was possible. So that was a huge learning moment for me was to, was that actually by putting more of me in the space, it's harder for people to create their own value. And that's really what coaching is about is people seeing their value, not that's mine. Huge. And what mm -hmm. are your rates now? So now the big number is $50,000 if people want to work with me for a year and $30,000 if people want to work with me for six months. And is there any, uh, when you are, now you're at that rate, is there any big jump? Like I hear often that, you know, you get to a certain point where it's like, okay, I, the number doesn't make much of a difference. But yeah. has there been any big shifts as you get into some of those bigger numbers? Yeah, well, every time really. Uh, not... So before this, my rates were 30 and 20K months. And the game I've always played has been, first of all, I believe anytime someone says yes to a coach, there should be a threshold they have to cross. And that threshold often represents a, a leap into fear, the unknown, because anytime possibility gets created, an equal amount of fear shows up. And so if there's no fear, then mm, we probably haven't created much possibility. And so... Anytime the game was, anytime someone like a bunch of people say yes to me without any fear showing up at the current rates, I got to raise them because now I've started working with a level of people where those rates are not enough to kind of put them to a decision point in their life. That's just a belief. There's no truth to that. So someone could be like, well, Adam, blah, 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 blah. And I'd be like, great, you're right. Go away. This is my time on the podcast. Stop talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> so... So then I just saw Susan's question, which I love. Thank you for that question, Susan. Um, but I'm going to go back to this. Up to this point, I get people that say yes enough times. And then I, I kind of say, okay, it's time to challenge myself. It's time to, to raise things. I don't know if that'll continue. At this point, I'm looking at one thing I'm playing with is having one day intensives. And it's $3,000 and people fly here to Victoria and spend the day with me at my house. And we do a bunch of stuff. And maybe there's ceremony involved. I don't know. But who knows, the more I do my own work, the less interested in predicting the future I become, it turns out. It's terrifying. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. It's fun to go through that journey and, uh, yeah. and see some of the insights. And it's, it's like, uh, you know, from, from my over here, you know, a few years behind you on the path, it's so challenging and it's so difficult every, <laughs> every yeah. step and every time you raise it. Yeah. So I want to put that there as well, because you always make things sound so, so beautiful, you know, looking backwards. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, it's like, it is terrifying. It is challenging. You, some moments where you don't feel like it's going to, going to work out. Yes. 
Susan, thanks for the question. And uh, always lovely to have you here, Susan. Uh, you guys do come across as super smart. Thank you. I think it's my red shirt. In your coaching <laughs> work, you constantly try and lower your intellect or smartness to try and make people feel at ease. Um, do you want to have a, a swing at this? Totally. Definitely not. So first of all, I'm just going to own, I am super smart. Like, And that doesn't make me better than anyone else. Everyone, I believe, has their own unique set of qualities. Like um, some people are super generous. And some people have like this amazing in their presence. You're like, wow, I really believe in the possibility of angels. Like they are divinity. Part of who Adam Quine is on this planet is brilliance. So one, I just want to own that. Two, what most people that have a lot of brilliance have learned to do in their lives is either overcompensate. So lean really heavily on their intellect, which is kind of the bent down. Or the other one is undercompensate, uh, which is to try to lower our intellect so it's not intimidating to people. Talk, like pretend we're dumb. You see a ton of people like this in trades. A lot of people that are electricians are really frigging smart, but they go into trades because they've they learned at some point along the way to kind of, and I'm not saying people in trades are not intelligent. I'm saying they're actually very, very brilliant, but can show up in the world almost underdogging themselves. And so my job as coach is two things. One is to own who I am, not from arrogance, but just from like a really clean place. Like, hey, part of who Adam is is brilliant. And the other thing is to be willing to be humbled by life and by my clients and by this, the universe when I actually show up quite stupid. And if you're willing to see these opportunities, they are presented to you frequently. So I don't work to consciously lower my intellect and smartness. What I do is to be open and able to own both my intellect and my stupidity when it shows up. And Susan, it shows up a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's funny. For for me, I think a big part of, you know, part of my essence is love. And I think that's a big part of my coaching is I try and love my clients more than they've ever been loved before. I try to, and, and that doesn't just look like uh, me saying, Hey, I really love you. It's just what I do for them, how I show up, the energy I bring, the reverence I have to them. And sometimes I think if I, where I often get triggers, if I feel the person is smarter than me, then I'll try and come up to their level or try and um, impress them or, or something like that. And I'm a little bit I, frustrated. You haven't been doing that here. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, how dare you? Um, <laughs> yeah, so I noticed that, that that and I can do that. I can meet smart people where they're at or at least appear to, but that gets in the way of my love, which is my greatest gift, I think, to my clients is just to be someone that loves them more than they've ever been loved before. So, and you said it before when you were talking about taking yourself out of the space and being moreover with the possibility of, of the person you're working with. Uh, so much of that is being curious and, and being loving and just connecting and hanging out and, and being in a really close, intimate experience with another human, maybe the most intimate engagement they've ever had with another person. And so smarts, intellects, you know, and I, I've, I've had a couple of clients that are super smart and, you know, that can be challenging for me because it does take me out of that. Does that make sense? Makes sense to me. Yeah. But I, I, I have a story that I'd love to share about this, but with wit. Can I share that? Yes, please. So this is a story of uh, Nathan and myself in Peru. And um, another part of who Adam is, and I assert who Nathan is, and if you follow Nathan at all, I'm sure you've gotten an experience of this part of himself, and that's wit. Both of us, very witty people, um, 
good sense of humor, love to laugh, et cetera, et cetera. And for me, wit has always been this double-edged sword where be the one making people laugh. But if someone else is making people laugh, then, oh no, are they actually loving me as much? And, you know, we could analyze that. We're not going to. What I want to say is wit is great when they're laughing at me. And so the rule is that I'm the funny one in the room. And I had this really cool moment where Nathan and I were on a train with Michelle, who came on the journey with us, and this other woman who was kind of plunked into the journey with us. That's a different conversation. But anyhow, she was with us. is a good word. (laughs) Yeah, she was plunked in there. And Nathan was being hilarious. He was joking it up and... Stop. uh, Anyhow. What showed up for me is I could feel this part of me that really wanted to one-up or elevate, as we would say in improv, like one-up his jokes or his sense of humor or like add in my own jokes. So it's like, we're all laughing at Nathan, but don't remember guys, I'm funny too. Don't forget that part. And instead, I consciously, clearly with some work, I'm just noticing like, oh, there's some ground taken here, Adam. It's really neat that I get to see this in this moment. Consciously seeing that desire on my part and setting it aside, like choosing outside of it to just delight in how funny Nathan was being with, for, and around us. And um, so that's just, that's another place where I notice, like, ooh, it's edgy when we're around someone who does this thing that we love about ourselves and to really love that over there and and just let that be exactly as it is. Yeah, I love, uh, well, my favorite part of that story is me. <laughs> But <laughs> I also love uh, I, what I love about uh, having you on the show is you always show your work. Like you always mm-hmm. show how you work through something and what's going on in the background and what's the thought process. And as something comes up, how are you thinking about it? How are you processing it? And I really appreciate that about you. And Thank thanks you. for always always modeling that. It's uh, it's something wit is something that I'm always again. I think just to wrap this whole you know uh, <laughs> eighty minute long conversation, uh, not expected or intentional um the, the the whole part about the money story or whatever it is or like the, the the part of you the ego that's pulling you towards pulling you away from your essence i would say another one of those things is wit so creativity wit playfulness fun as well as brilliance you know that's that's who i am in my essence when i'm being my highest self and oftentimes when i'm thinking about how can i turn this into a business those are the things that get sucked out of you know, sucked out of all the ideas and the fun. And I'm glad that you brought that up. Who do you love to work with at the moment? Like who, what's your dream client or, or what are you filtering for at the moment when you're looking for a client? Um, there's a couple of things. So there's like something I'm looking not to be in their space, not because it's wrong, but just, uh, and that is someone looking to do better in life. I just had someone actually who, it was a referral and we got on the phone and, and really what they're looking for, they're not looking for transformation. They're looking to get better at what they're already doing. And that's fine. The conversation I'm interested in, not who I'm interested in living in my life. And um, so I'm looking for people that want to, it's hard to say this without using buzzwords, but like create a transformational shift in their life. And I love working with people that really drive me nuts by which I mean people that the most succinct way to say this is people that are me last week or eight years ago. So people that are unwilling to trust what I say and are going to challenge everything that I reflect to them, people that are going to resent me, people that are going to try to defeat me intellectually when I reflect something to them. And the reason I love working with those people is because 
when I get scared, that's who I am. And people like that are a reflection of me. And they're a gift to me because they demand that I do my own work. And so that's really thrilling to me. And the absolute favorite clients I have are the ones where I'm up pacing around and I'm like, how do I... Okay, first, how do I see that the gift that this person is? How do I love them for who they are, not for the obnoxious way that they're picking at what I offered them? And then, and then how do I, who do I need to be so that they can experience me back on the same side of the net with them, looking out into the future and trying to figure out how we're going to move forward from here? And that's an amazing place to play with people. And it is anything but boring. Boring is easier and safer. I just can't play that game anymore because I, I speak too much about being committed to something else and I'm really committed to walking my walk. So beautiful. And if people, what's the best way for people to experience you? Uh, if they watch this, they're getting experience of you. What's the, the best next step? Such a great question that no one ever really asks it that way. So thanks for saying it that way. Like the best way for people to experience me. Uh, follow me on Facebook. I post lots of content and stuff there. Come to my website, adamquiney.com and sign up for my emails which is just a simple weekly little plonk into your email inbox. And third, check out my podcast, Get Lit on iTunes, which is more of a short conversation about leadership and stuff like that. But all of those are great ways to experience me. Beautiful. Thank you, my friend. It was a pleasure spending that time with you in Peru. And Adam and I get to share a room in Peru. So, you know, it has like that real school campfire where like you're staying up late, you're talking. It's like, we should really go to sleep. But one more thing I want to say. And <laughs> yeah, totally. Lots of laughs. It was really fun. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you so much. You're a great friend and a great mentor and a great coach. I love what you do. Love you, Nathan. I appreciate the opportunity to have this chat. Thanks, man. Thank you, guys. Uh, thank you, all of you who uh, show up here uh, every week. Um, Alison, Susan, I know you're a great support. Um, Jackie, Edward, thanks, everybody, for uh, for coming and uh, and being with us. And this has been a really fun conversation. I think this is really valuable for anyone that's starting a business, for anyone that's uh, taking on any kind of creative pursuit and is trying to unravel money stories. And hearing Adam's journey through coaching and, and how he approaches stuff is always valuable for new coaches. So if you know anyone in that category, share this uh, with them tag them in the comment and uh, we'll both love you forever uh, alright thanks guys uh, always a pleasure I'll be back next week with episode number 92 that was the Nathan Seward show inspiring you to live an extraordinary life 